This is another iRaw podcast. So how this program has moved from a uh, a lens which is from a point where they were uh, talking about controlling the population controlling rabies as a health factor so these these factors are still there another level has come across which is cleaning the city cleaning the city spaces in accordance with the upper upper middle class and above uh, classes in these urban areas in these cities Welcome back to the final episode of season three of The Animal Tone, which is focused on animals and the urban. I think we've had a really good season of unpacking some of the important concepts related to the urban. There are so many more I would have liked to have you know, spoken about, things like urban ecology, urban arcs, novel ecosystems. But uh, of course, there's only so much you can talk about in a single season. And I think that we've done a fairly good job of touching on some of the most important themes and ideas currently circulating scholarship related to animals and the urban, as well as pointing to how important the urban is as a space for considering and thinking about not only the lives of animals inside cities, but as well as those outside of them. Uh, So urban areas are really important spaces, and uh, I hope that that's become clear throughout the season. Uh, Before I introduce today's guests for the grad review, I just wanted to say thank you once again to Animals in Philosophy, Politics, Law and Ethics, Apple, for sponsoring this podcast. A particular thank you to Sue Donaldson and Will Kimlicker for all their guidance and their support since the beginning uh, of launching this podcast. I I really don't think I could have done it without them. So just a, a thank you there. Uh, I also wanted to point out that if you have any ideas for future seasons of The Animal Turn, I'm now starting to develop other sponsorship relationships. The next season, which I'll speak a bit about at the end of this episode, uh, has some sponsors, yay, uh, in addition to Apple. And uh, it's really an exciting opportunity, I think, to work with other research groups on developing a season that kind of focuses in on particular themes and ideas, as well as potentially opening up opportunities for, for grad students. If you've got some ideas for future seasons and ways in which uh, we could potentially cl- collaborate or ways in which your research institute could sponsor a season, that would be really amazing. Uh, feel free to reach out to me to continue that conversation. Info at the animal term podcast.com. Uh, And also, I just wanted to write here at the end, say, please feel free to use these podcasts and particular episodes or whole seasons as tools in the classroom. If you are a teacher or a lecturer and you think that these ideas are useful for your students, please, please, please uh, put them in your syllabi as supplementary material. Uh, And let me know. Let me know how it goes. If it is useful, if your students respond to these episodes, uh, this is kind of where my goal is, uh, seeing this podcast as a pedagogical tool. Uh, let's move on. Today's episode is already really long and I don't want to keep you too much, uh, but we had a really good conversation and the guests today in my grad review are both uh, PhD candidates with the ERC grant project Urban Ecologies at the National Institute of Advanced Studies in Bangalore. Through their work, they are attempting conversations between ethnographic and ethological perspectives of thinking about animals. And we talk a fair bit about this in today's episode. In fact, almost the first half of the episode is kind of dedicated to speaking a bit about their work, as well as some of the gaps that we found in the season. 
Shubhanji Srivastava's PhD work is primarily centered on understanding human-dog relationships in urban India, whereas Anmol Chaudhuri's work is focused primarily on monkeys. We delve into a whole bunch of different concepts and ideas, and I think we really get into a big stride in the, the last third of the interview where we're really just kind of riffing off one another and thinking about some of these ideas and how they could be used in future urban scholarship. Let's get started straight away with finding out a little bit about both of you. So I know that you're both working on a project together, actually, so it's kind of fun to have you here. Could you possibly both tell us a little bit about uh, yourselves as well as the project that you're working on? I'm, I'm currently uh, working on the monkeys. I'm working with monkeys in the cities of Delhi um, and Guwahati in India. So a larger project, I think, um, as Shubhangi will also tell you, we have two other people uh, with us in the project, with the four of us, we're, we're kind of looking at urban ecologies uh, in India, in Indian cities, global south. That's the kind of focus. And uh, and the four of us have different focus animal groups. So I kind of look at the monkeys. Shubhangi is kind of looking at dogs. Two of our other friends, they're looking at cattle and uh, the, uh, the smaller animal husbandry animals, such as chickens, pigs, goats. So this is what the larger project is about. And uh, where I kind of featured in is I was, you know, after my master's, I completed my master's in anthropology. So I was trying to look in, look at certain opportunities where I might be able to do some work with animals, uh, not per se in the urban, but uh, where I might see certain kinds of gaps and uh, especially around policy circles. I was wondering if I can, you know, go there. But then this opportunity came in and I just, you know, kind of applied for it. And uh, the project sounded really, really exciting. And um, so this is how I kind of, you know, got absorbed into the project. And um, though I have a zoology and an anthropology background, so I kind of, uh, I was very conflicted about how to kind of approach this work. I've I've done some uh, ethnographic work in during my master's, but but altogether I will you know a technical training in zoology during my bachelor's. So so this project that's was a, really useful. So, 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 that's amazing. Precisely. So this so this project in that sense was also um, innovative. It wanted to be more innovative. So I think it became a space where I could kind of have this conversation between you know zoology anthropology and then really learn about ge- the geographical theory which is altogether new to me so mm-hmm. yeah and this sorry i think you did say this is part of your your phd now Precisely. this project for all of you you are you are phd students that are working on these different uh, animals yes yes yeah. yes okay that's incredible how like Sometimes I feel like that's something I miss as a as a, a PhD student in animal studies is having fellow PhD students to to work with, right? right. To kind of um, think through these problems because they are they are complicated. And the fact that you have both uh, anthropology and zoology in your in your realm of interest um, and knowledge is just amazing because. I think it can sometimes feel a bit overwhelming when you're trying to grapple with animal studies and you need to know the like the politics, you need to know the mm-hmm. economics, you need to know yeah. biology, you need to know a variety of things and yeah. and you it can really feel crazy sometimes. Yeah. Um so that's incredible. That's so interesting. And what what year are you in now? Uh so we're in our fourth year of our PhD. Basically this is supposed to be the writing 
phase you know but the but the past year and a half uh, stalled some of our uh, field work programs mm-hmm. so we kind of couldn't really keep up with those so there are some commitments that we are kind of chasing right now and uh, finishing some of those you know interviews very very mandatory interviews in the cities speaking to certain officials you know and um, making some observations uh, with our uh, you know focal animals that we have so kind of finishing that up then kind of get into this writing mode hopefully we'll get done uh, you know by uh, next year august that's what the aim is amazing <laughs> amazing me too i'm hoping to be done by next year august okay so yes. this time next year the three of us need to uh, meet back and yeah. we'll be like how are you doing yeah. <laughs> and uh, and be kind to each other Absolutely. i think um, <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, maybe you can uh, step in now and tell us a little yes. bit. So we've got a kind of a sense of the project now, but maybe a bit of how you came to be in this uh, in this project, involved in the work you're doing. Yeah, so it's very interesting that we both are here to give me and Anmol are here in this podcast because we go way back a bit. Yeah. Uh, we are both from the same department of anthropology before we joined the, the PhD. Although we did not know each other, we were from different batches, but uh, yeah. we met during the PhD interviews and everything and you're like oh we're from the same department <laughs> yeah so uh, same thing like uh, I uh, did my anthropology and I became interested in studying uh, primates was uh, primate behavior was one of the subjects we were taught in my master's and that was an interesting point and uh, but it was more of understanding the evolutionary histories and um, behaviors of primates and uh, I followed that up in my MPhil in anthropology from the same department, uh, University mm-hmm. of Delhi, and uh, from there, like we were, uh, I was interested in this project because um, I was already studying human-animal relations during my MPhil. I was working as a research associate, and I was in the field collecting data about it and working towards my dissertation on on uh, uh, human-macaque interactions, and I was interested in that, and then. Uh, uh, fortunately, I came across this project, which is about like uh, uh, the like the official uh, name of the project is uh, urban ecologies governing non-human living in cities. So, yeah, so we we are under the project. We are uh, looking at two cities, as Anmol said, uh, Delhi and uh, Guwahati, which are uh, Delhi is more of a central capital city in India. And Guwahati is an eastern city, which is uh, which which could be called a, an upcoming urban center in the eastern India. So we are mm-hmm. sort of looking at urbanization and how uh, non-human animals are living in these uh, uh, urban centers in the global south. And in the global south itself, also we are uh, uh, looking uh, through a comparative lens. We are understanding this uh, concept about urban animals. Uh, in these two cities so the uh, prior to COVID the plan was to uh, do like uh, one year in Delhi one year in Guwahati and then have have a comparative data set to see um, the two uh, the lives of non-humans in these two cities but now we are adjusting as everyone to these uh, new norms in our work mm. yeah so I mean I, I, ideally our work our field work should have been over but we have maybe two months more to tie up some loose ends in Guwahati and then uh, it will be full-fledged writing mode for our PhD. Uh, Amazing and you're focused on dogs now. Yes so my uh, my work uh, is for my for this project and towards the PhD I'm uh, studying uh, street dogs 
specifically. So, and I'm uh, looking, uh, I'm combining two methods of uh, behavioral observations from ethology and ethnographic met, uh, observations from uh, anthropology to look at, to uh, study the lives of dogs in interactions with humans in these two cities. Uh, so, like, I usually uh, follow the dogs and uh, they lead me to uh, whoever they want to. And then I talk to them or look at how they are maneuvering to the city or living their life and, like, every day what they are doing, how they are doing, what decisions they are making, what they are eating, why they are eating that, where they are going, where they are sleeping. Yeah, and, like, who they are interacting with, their own species, humans, other species, uh, cows, uh, whoever is there and like even the cars and non non uh, inanimate objects around them how they are interacting with them it brings out a very interesting aspect of their life which i feel is very important that's what i'm trying to look at and include I, i'm really happy to have you guys here because we haven't really spoken i think in in depth in this ep- in the season actually about ecology and and urban ecology kind of came up several times uh, in interviews and uh, in the previous season, season two, we spoke a bit about cognitive uh, ethology, but here we could have, I think, also grappled with what does ethnography look like in, in the urban? What are some of the methods mm-hmm. that folks could use to understand urban animals? And and in hindsight, you know, you can't fit everything, of course, into to 10 episodes, but uh, I think having some sense of what these methods are, like how, how do you... We talk about the significance and the importance of seeing these urban animals, but how do we like how do we go about viewing their lives or analyzing their lives? And I think some of the work uh, you two are doing with regards to like melding uh, ethology and ethnography mm. and ecology, all the e words, the triple e's. Yeah. Um, I think that's it's kind of at the forefront of of research right now with with animals in the urban, right? I mean, I'm absolutely terrified doing this work because. <laughs> You know, because there's no sense of clarity in what, you know, what we're really doing, because we we know the questions, we know what we're asking, we know, and now that we've been in the field, we know what the field, you know, sort of looks like. Um, but to really, you know, this, this it, it all boils down to how are we really kind of um, trying to bring out those perspectives specifically kind of focused around the animal itself you know what what the Mm -hmm. animal is is, what is the animal really doing in the city you know i mean of course there can be very very anthropocentric descriptions of what the animal is doing but um how do you kind of either minimize those anthropocentric effects or do you detach yourself from uh, that practice of writing in a particular way how do you kind of do that so Mm -hmm. i and i i think for each one of us, it's different because we are all different people, one. But then we're also dealing with different animals themselves. Then we're also interacting with different kinds of people who the animals interact with. So in, in effect, you know, it's it's all, you know, it's, it's extremely dif- different and variable and so uncertain that it's scary. That, you know, are we mm-hmm. really doing what we are doing and does it really make sense? And, you know, and this is this is me, I'm, I'm supposed to be in the fourth year, clearly. And, but... Mentally, I don't think that I'm, I'm, I'm quite there, you know. What's all around you, almost everywhere you look, and makes your life better? Birds. Learn all about these beautiful creatures in this wonderful new podcast called Birds of a Feather Talk Together. Two experts guide two newbies on their journey to learn more. 
mallard ducks, ivory-billed woodpeckers, Hawaiian honeycreepers, blue jays, cardinals, sandhill cranes, and more. Each week we discuss a different bird and walk away with a better understanding of the birds all around us. Oh, and we have a ton of fun doing it. Listen now. You're going to like learning about these birds. I guarantee it. I'm happy I'm not alone. I'm happy I'm not the only one answering my fourth year feeling like, what the hell am I doing? Um, I mean, it sounds like you guys have a pretty good grip on things, so I wouldn't be too worried. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I can totally relate to kind of that fear of, you know, of there's a lot of responsibility also in looking at these animals. I think a lot of us come to doing this research because we care about animals, right? We care about the, the ways in which they're treated. And uh, our research has implications. Uh, and especially at the PhD level, I think you start to feel yeah. the weight of that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, a lot to, it's a lot to contend with. Yeah, so like just to add like what Anmol was saying, it's definitely uh, uh, terrifying to, to understand how and what are we going to do. I mean, initially when we started in Delhi with our fieldwork, we knew that we have to bring together two different methods. We knew that we have to study these animals with our questions which haven't been done actually in the field. They have been theoretically understood. There are, there are, we have read up on these things in papers, but going to the field and with, with in a very different setting the, uh, altogether, like uh, in Delhi. And then again, then moving to Guwahati, which is again, a very different culture, very different ecology. Then and how do we do it? It's very difficult. But then also it comes before we go to writing with each animal, I think all four of us, we faced a different methodological challenge that we we went to our field with certain like for instance if i'm telling take an example from uh, from my own work i went to the field with a certain uh, uh, to uh, with the, the behavioral observations how to do it i had an idea from before how, uh, what method what software to use how to go about the ethogram but when i when I, uh, the areas which i was dealing it in uh, dealing with in delhi the animal which i was dealing with these settings were so different that the uh, the plan I had totally failed there. So I the interactions was happening so quickly that if I had stuck to the previous plan, I would have missed on a lot of things. I wouldn't. I I have to literally run after the dogs for like kilometers because they're chasing some other dog uh, for for that long out of their territory. So uh, yeah, and at that time you can't just like you, you can't absorb so many things which are happening around you. You can't. Uh, uh, enter all those data uh, data entry points into your software at that point. So I was just I just moved on to okay at this point I just want to see what is happening, record what is happening, and then later go on and analyze it. So I think these are things which you come across with with these even new methods which we are trying to do, where we are trying to combine ethology, ethnography, or ecology. Even within that, we had a lot of challenges, and this is what I also felt like t during the season. These things came up, like uh, the the methods to study urban animals. They did. Uh, come up in instances where like Michelle Westlake and she, uh, she was talking about ant colonies observations or Marcus Bainsrock was talking about the uh, his study about hyenas and the ethnographic approach he took but I felt that these were left out uh, and they were quite mm -hmm. open-ended and if uh, and possibly this is something I felt nice that okay this is some uh, if we are in this episode we could m maybe contribute towards that gap which was in the uh, season and and I and I think yeah, th these these methods are very important to talk about at the moment because 
urban animals we are studying them we we have moved out towards the animal turn to st- uh, studying these animals but how to do it when a mm-hmm. researcher actually reaches the field i think that's a big problem that uh, a lot of us face a lot of us are facing so mm-hmm. i think a discussion about that is very Absolutely. important Yeah, I mean, it is something Marcus brought up in the episode. Uh, you know, he was also a, a student who just kind of showed up in a city. He was completely outside of his own, you know, cultural and geographical location, and had to kind of figure it out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and speaking about methods is kind of it's kind of like the background noise. You know, we all read these really exciting, interesting papers about theory, and sometimes you need to actually just get to the nuts and bolts mm-hmm. of like, when I want to, how do I do this, and how do I do this ethically? Right, so yes. that was also something that um, that came up a fair bit with Michelle as well, where she said, you know, she would start to observe or she would start to do tests and start to, you know, confine some animals as a as a way of trying to understand design. And through that process, she started to actually have ethical quandaries, like, is this yes. is this appropriate? Um, and I think starting to speak about these is is um, the right way to go, right? Absolutely. So, so maybe. Before we start talking a bit about the the themes between um, some episodes, which I think we're we're doing now already, uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about the methods that you've been using because you you said they're like enter data points and stuff, and this seems foreign to me, right? So, so to me, ethnography at least um, is you know going and just doing deep observations, taking down notes. And Anmol, you mentioned you know we all write differently. Like ethnography is in some respects a very immersive. Yeah. a reflective Absolutely. practice where you you write down your observations and sometimes you're not even sure exactly what you're observing until you reflect and you look at your notes again Absolutely. um but coming from the primarily social side of of research i don't think i would ever use words like data points right to to think about this so um and i actually didn't even know what you were talking about when you were like and then i just need to enter the data points so so what what is the what is that what what does that mean what what are you guys doing when you're observing your your animals in your cities um so i'll just uh, clarify this word so when uh, i'm observing an interaction uh, so there there'll be an interactor who's initiating the interaction there'll be a recipient who who's on the receiving end of that interaction and there'll be a, a, a the interaction itself so these uh, in uh, with the help of ethogram which are developed extensively on uh, different and are different for every uh animal which will which are being studied and so based on that there are certain codes of interactions and then you uh you can break down a particular interaction say a human is feeding uh one of my focal animals night so uh, that's one of my focal animals so uh, a human feeding a focal uh, night so that would be my interaction we will have codes and that would be make one data point and then each data point which would also have certain uh, contributing factors uh, about the weather or how many people are around uh, that uh, that specific area where the interaction is happening uh, what which other dogs of the same pack are nearby which other dogs of the other pack are nearby when this interaction is happening and so these all contribute to one data point and based on these several uh, uh, entries you get a data set on which you analyze and then so this is this is a very crisp uh, way of uh, like uh, explaining what uh, how i'm doing observations but this 
so these there are softwares which uh, ecological and logical softwares where uh, uh, which you can use right away to end um, uh, for these entries in the field like uh, for example i was using handybase which is one of the softwares um but it became very difficult at that moment when the dog was interacting and there was i mean it it could be easier if you're very much adapted to that uh, uh, to entering data or to, to that software but as i said i'm very uh, i'm not so good with technology so i was maybe that's one of the drawbacks or the bias which was there so i couldn't do that at the moment i wanted to look at what was happening and then also there are people who who uh, these were very uh, uh, densely populated areas where i was studying so every time i'm standing there with my phone with my laptop i am sort of an outsider than in that community in that area so every uh, almost every minute or two a person would come up to me and ask me what are you doing what, what are you studying here what are you doing? they are very much interested in my work and those were actually very rich the uh, interactions which i used to have with such people who were interested in my work and then they would get to know that oh you studying dogs nobody has ever studied dogs why are you studying dogs and they just start these uh, questions which they pose to me they just start make them think also about the dog which they might not have before and then they they these interactions have uh, and these uh, uh, conversations did give me a lot of interesting insights into how and uh, what people were thinking about these uh, dogs in their area so i think mm-hmm. this way i could connect the two methods i think for me it was slightly different because i so when i was when i was working um, uh, on my uh, dissertations there was a small brief dissertation during my um, uh, bsc in zoology and the only thing that finally kind of fascinated me was observing animals and i realized i mean i was very i mean the only reason i took zoology was because you know i was like oh cells very interesting and i was very interested in cells and understanding cell biology and the kind of metabolic pathways and so on and so forth but but then i was like oh you know you're i'm sitting here in the lab and you know it's not as it's not becoming as fascinating as i thought it would in due course and then slowly by the by the end by the end you know the final year uh, there was one paper on uh, animal behavior and i kind of looked at that and i was like oh you know this is really interesting this is something that that interests me because it's talking to the evolutionary theory it's it's talking to um, you know observing animals what they're really doing and that's something that i've personally always done because there've always been animals around wherever i've lived um, you know across india and you know there've always been cows there've always been crows there've always been sparrows um uh, you'll have small centipedes walking in at any point you know all of these insects from insects to birds to larger mammals and to living around areas where you also have sl- you know the himalayan bears coming down you know whenever they feel like um uh, uh, leopards uh, you know snow uh leopards you know coming down and so th- there have been animals coming in and around human habitation and so those were some kind certain kinds of triggers but i was not very happy with the the methods that were used specifically within zoology because they were in you know in some way uh they wanting they wanted to quantize the behavior they wanted to measure something you know and and it was per- precisely for that reason i kind of moved from zoology to anthropology because i thought you know maybe anthropology will give me that flexibility you know that kind of edge 
those books that I've heard of where people have written about just, you know, one of the most, the most mundane activities, you know, the everyday activities, but they're, but they're still interesting to read because you write, you, you read such descriptions of those, uh, you know, activities. Why not kind of do something that like that with animals? And so I kind of moved from there to this anthropology. Then I got interested in primates because anthropology would only, only study primates. They wouldn't be interested in anything else. So, um, and finally, coming down to this project then, the first few months I was so, so troubled by what, what, how am I really going to do this? How am I really going to get that, you know, data from the field? How am I really going to observe monkeys? Because what I had previously done during my master's uh, thesis was, um, you know, very typical ethological quantitative methods. You make the ethogram and, you know, you have certain behaviors that you've described. Then you see uh, at what intervals do those behaviors kind of happen. And then you also have a time interval within which you lose. You know, you're not supposed to observe the animal because you're only observing them at those particular timestamps. And so you, you're, you're essentially losing 15 minutes or 20 minutes in an hour, depending on what kind of interval you've kept. So that slightly troubled me. And then I thought, you know, can we kind of look at, do more of an ethnography? Can we really call it an ethnography? Because there was some sort of hesitation that we received from uh, anthropologists within India. People we spoke to, they were like, oh, you know, no, 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 you don't do anthropology with, you know, this ethnography with animals. It's supposed to entirely be with humans. You can speak to them and so on and so forth. So, you know, it opened like this, this, this entire box, which has already been open for like years, you know, what animals the can ethno, do and what animals can't. Ethnos means humans, you can't do animals. Precisely. Yeah. And so now, now what I'm really doing in the field and I'm, I've finally become confident, you know, of what I'm really doing now by the third year, by the end of third year, I just go, I am just following troops of monkeys initially, just, you know, doing nothing go wherever they go, you know, and just follow them, interact with whoever they interact with. I'm not, I, I don't choose the people I speak to because I, because I respond to only the kinds of actions that the macaques are doing. And then select some individuals that I find fascinating. They're doing certain kinds of, you know, behaviors and, you know, kind of follow them uh, over a period of time, you know, weeks together, sometimes, you know, and, and, and the observation hours might range from, say, any, anywhere between four hours a day to 12 hours a day, you know. So, so, so you feel that maybe you know some tiny bit about the animal now, you know, just a yeah. bit, but just a bit. Because you, you don't know about their internal lives, how they're in, interacting with um, others when you're not there. How are they interacting with, mm-hmm. within themselves, their groups? When you're not there, how are they interacting with other animals? Because you always see these interactions happening, but a researcher, quote unquote, can only be there for you know, you know, so many hours or yeah. so much time. I mean, and th- those are questions, of course, that anthropology has dealt with for for a long time. Mm-hmm. And, and I really appreciate how you're trying to bring together. I think ecological work has brought us a lot of understanding and a lot of appreciation for how animals are. Right, Absolutely. a lot of appreciation for how animals' bodies work, how they relate to their environments. You know, a lot of that work is responsible for for a lot of our fascination with mm-hmm. with animals. Um, but on the other hand, like you, I think, like you rightfully said, is that there are limits to quantitative knowledge as well, just like there are limits to qualitative uh, knowledge and the time we're able to go. And I think melding together these, also somewhat embracing our ability to to empathize with and to appreciate different animal cultures, mm-hmm. um, is is really 
an exciting field, but I think really important if we're going to destabilize kind of the human in how we think and how we create knowledge. Yeah. Uh, and of course, uh, I'm working primarily in, in the archives and in historical documents, and that raises a whole different um, set of questions about method, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I was trying to grapple and think a bit about how I can see animal subjectivity in the archives. And one of the contentions I got back is like, no, 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 listen, animal ethnographers are starting to to do this kind of work. Um, right. They're really thinking through how to grapple with animal subjectivity. There's no way we could possibly try and, uh, you know, see this in, in historical documents. So I think, um, and I'm still working through that myself. I haven't got a, an answer, of course, but it is interesting how the different spaces you go and the different um, the fields that you use to help you understand, whether it's anthropology, ecology, um, you know, history, geography, these, these really do help you to contend with, with it. But perhaps now we can um, switch to talking a little bit about uh, the season. And I think that this conversation about methods has really, it's, it's kind of given us a really good backdrop to start this conversation because I think we, you kind of get a, a sense of how hard it is to know animals and see animals. So just before moving on, uh, I wanted to add a bit to what you said, because you talk, you're talking about archives. And that's something um, I am looking into for the to look at how dogs have been controlled and their how dogs have been viewed in the official documents which are available in the these in these yeah. two cities and uh, or like in pre-colonial times or uh, after independence how when these uh, all programs uh, the uh, birth control programs around dogs they came across mm-hmm. and how what was what were the proceedings or what were people talking about how were they looking about at dogs and and i and, and i really uh, agree with your uh, when you say that it's not about the discipline it's not about if if whether the archives are to be looked by historians or ethnography should be done by anthropologists i think it's to, we should go through up into this with through our questions and which which method is actually helping us answer that mm-hmm. question in a better way i think if we're combining these um, different techniques different uh, tools which are used by uh, uh, there's there's always a, pro, a pros for all these methods and which are being used since uh, since these uh, uh, disciplines have been there and then if we're using them i think it gives us a larger picture of what the animal is doing and how the animal is living and since these animals have been there and they've adapted to the rapidly changing urban processes, mm-hmm. there is something they're doing. There's something they're yeah. doing well. So how do we reach there? How do we understand what, how their life is? And just not in a broader population sense, but the individual dog and its exactly. individual, mm-hmm. its everyday activity. That's, I think, which is much more of an importance. And to reach there, I feel a lot of different methods, a combined methodology is what, yeah. I have been using, we all have been using, and I think you're uh, absolutely correct in saying that. Yeah, Yeah, I think, I mean, I I said it in the interview with Philip Howell, is I really think anyone interested in in animals should do a trip to the archives because uh, how are we going to see their histories? And oddly enough, uh, people might be surprised by just how ubiquitous animals are in the archives. They haven't been indexed properly, and archives Mm -hmm. take a lot of time, right? It's not like walking into a library and saying, I'd like to see a book about dogs. You you have to sift through a lot of this uh, governance material. Um, but I think that if you're interested in, in in an animal, just like if you're interested in, in a human or in a culture, you should try to center them, you know, find out what their context is. And to some extent, we have we have 
documents that have been created by humans, sure, but um, they do offer in many regards some observations from a time gone, uh, which is useful and, and powerful, I think. Like you said, even in terms of understanding ecologies, how do we understand how spaces have changed over time? These documents really house a lot of, a lot of information. And even um, them okay. not being present, even them not being present in these archives, them being not represented in these documents is also saying a story in itself, I think, which is exactly. very important to bring up. Mm-hmm. And and how they're represented, yeah. right? Yeah. So uh, something that's been interesting for me is I, I look a lot at tax documents and uh, dogs came up, but they came up, they weren't the first animal to come up and the movement that they did on the page, they kind of... They, they were handwritten and then at some point they moved and they had two columns and then it was, then they were separated by gender, whereas other animals weren't. Um, so mm. what, what does this tell us about the societies Absolutely. that they were in at the time, right? Um, which is fascinating to think through. Uh, okay. So let's, let's pull apart some more of these themes that we've seen coming up. So we've, I think in general, we've agreed that the, the season could have grappled more with, with methods and possibly even spoken a bit more about ecology. Uh, but what are some of the synergies that you saw cutting across some of these episodes? So if you were to think of, you know, a theme or something for you that really stood out in this season, uh, what, what would it be for you? See, the kind of work that I've been doing, I was, I was trying to understand how some of these conversations are speaking to my work. One, I would say that all of these uh, episodes were brilliant because the urban and the animal, the question of the urban and the animal and the animal in the urban is really like a broad one. It's, it's, we can't possibly cover it in any kinds of, or any number of episodes. So I believe kind of introducing this entire set of themes in this season served brilliantly because frankly ever since we've started this PhD we've we've come across all of these themes in the recording because we see people really working on all of these things and and we read people who you've kind of you know you've had we've uh, met people who've uh, been on your episode so and and that's fascinating because you understand that oh you know there are people working on it but the other thing is with with the kind of work that I'm doing with monkeys in uh, Delhi and Guwahati, in terms of the archival work specifically, again, a lot of themes around management have kind of appeared. But all of those have were never indexed within management. All of those were indexed within international affairs. They were largely classified under international affairs because the use of monkeys essentially was for biomedical reasons. And India was a large, large you know, a huge uh, supplier of uh, lab testing animals, specifically monkeys. And uh, this has been throughout the past century. It's interesting to see that there are many breaks in it. There are many breaks in it in the sense the British initially allow this kind of bio, you know, this biomedical use of animals and, you know, understanding of them as this commodity that can be used to better the lives of humans. You know, that's the intention behind you know, these kinds of animal testings. And then you have at one point, the first prime minister putting a ban on it because uh, the animals that are going to the US, they're not being used for biomedical reasons anymore. They are being used for defense. They're they're being used to test defense weapons in the US. And uh, the prime minister, the Indian prime minister says, you know, this is a blatant lie and I'm not going to allow you to take any more animals. And then there's a there's a brief kind of relaxation in which he agrees that, you know, so many animals will only be given per year, so on and so forth, until there's a ban on the transport of uh, monkeys altogether in 1979. And 
and in all of these documents that you see captivity or capturing of animals and translocation of animals specifically these monkeys is very very central i mean an entire discussion could be fashioned out of the different kinds of cages that were designed uh, through these years you know keeping in mind also the comfort of the animal so to say that is what they would say you know it's 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 also to kind of make the animal more comfortable while it's being taken from the indian subcontinent to the us and so so this so this uh, conversation around um, pervasive captivity kind of spoke to me because um, of course there's there are many aspects to my work and this is something that i feel i need to talk about more and i mean it this 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 conversation pushed me to think more about these connections because i'm now in my writing phase i'm you know i'm thinking about these things and what nicola was trying to say i kind of understand that not only in the physical sense because there ha- there is still being the monkeys are still being caught and translocated to areas outside the city because there can be no more translocations outside the country which would keep the population in check just so to say so in delhi there are there are strong strong practices of control uh monkeys are absolutely to be monkeys dogs cattle all kinds of animals are absolutely to be kept outside away from the streets basically and uh, this was based on a petition a writ petition that was filed in 2001 by a lawyer who lived in one of the more fancy well off colonies in south mm-hmm. delhi the southern district of delhi but what i think is really useful about nicola's use of uh, pervasive captivity and i, I have uh-huh. to admit like that that in that interview also really spoke to me is, is he's not just talking about captivity i think in the obvious sense exactly. right he's not just saying he's not just saying okay there there are animals that are caged mm-hmm. which i think many of us would would appreciate and that came up i think several times throughout uh you know also with paula kari she spoke a lot about animals that are being uh, caged but i think yeah. paula and nicola they work together actually I think there's some really interesting synergies happening here with with regards to how she was thinking about invisibility and how he was thinking about yeah. uh, captivity mm-hmm. because his idea that animals become reliant on the urban and they they become captive to the urban, urban. in some respects yeah. and and not not necessarily intentionally but that they are captive through their relations and that this is a spectra of uh, or there are a spectra of of captivities kind of melded to me with what 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 Paolo was saying about there being a spectra of invisibilities as well uh, and the ways in which uh, animals are are seen or not seen and not just in the physical sense right yeah the other thing um, about um, relationship between the concept of the this notion of captivity and invisibility also comes from this discussion around more than human right because when we say more than human or the people who've been talking about more than human they're also talking about only certain kinds of animals because you know more than human captures the gaze the human gaze of only certain animals that are either more visible or you know animals uh, that have been at least in the conservation circles been used to generate a lot of revenue so for example the project tiger that's been going on in india i do i in in my reading of this entire situation I don't see how much of it has actually been done for the tigers themselves. It's it's also about maintaining aesthetic natural reserves so that people keep visiting. There are tourist attractions, and at the end of the day, you always have um, you know um, animals. Um, uh, I mean, at the expense of the animals. So this, so this, and I was reading an interesting paper. I might, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you who it was by, and they were talking about something called the less than human in the city. 
as opposed to the more than human. And in that, they're basically trying to say that there are certain kinds of animals that become so, so invisible in the, in the, in the everyday city, even though they are there. It's not only that the human, uh, the non-humans become the less than human. It's also the humans that are interacting with those less than human animals. So this kind of flows into this uh, the other conversation about precarity and informality, right? That there are certain animals the state would like to look at and there are other animals that the state wouldn't want to look at. Even though the dogs are being, uh, the, the uh, animal birth control programs are, be, are being run, dogs are being caught, you know, and, 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 and reintroduced to the same yeah. areas. But the monkeys are being taken out from the city to another space, which is being imagined as a haven for them so that they would never leave that space. Uh, but, but that's not how it's working out. The, monkey, yeah. the monkeys spill over to the surrounding areas, essentially kind of causing the same trouble there rather than in, um, in, the, city. in the city and in the, more, in the more elite neighborhoods, right? So they are being taken out mm. from the more elite neighborhoods. So the problem then is not of the elite, it's also of the migrant worker who lives in Delhi, the migrant worker who lives at the periphery of Delhi. So so what I'm hearing here are two kind of different uh, cross-cutting themes. So the one I think which you raised right at the beginning is the theme of management and how management entails a whole bunch, a whole range of biopolitical interventions, but that also operate through different um, captivities Mm -hmm. and different visibilities and invisibilities that, that impact a variety of populations. And I think Part of that is also kind of this idea of entanglement um, and that different populations are entangled with one another through precarity or through privilege, yeah. uh, which also, you know, is related to to management. Shubhanji, maybe you could jump in here uh, also. I don't know if you want to contribute to that theme a little bit or if you've got another kind of cross-cutting theme that you would like to to highlight. What actually related to me from the season was of course, it, it relates to what Anmol has been talking about. It's it's the theme of biopolitics and the power dynamics in the human-animal relations with the, which uh, Kritika Srinivasan was talking about. And like how she talks about the birth control program and the breeding practices which are aimed at controlling the populations of dogs in India. And like she she does a comparative work with the, with the program in UK and India and how that, that works out. But what I have seen in my work here is that uh, I try to look at uh, this program from its beginning and how it is happening and unfolding now in the urban and in these two cities. And and what come what comes across is interesting that uh, it did it did start and did grow from a biopolitical lens, but it it has moved on to a politics of aesthetics. What Anmol is talking about, it's it's when when they when this so these programs are largely aimed at controlling the street dog population, sterilizing the street dog dog populations, and these street dogs in India they are mostly considered. Uh, quote unquote dirty or uh, unwanted in these clean urban spaces and uh, which are the complaints which these municipal corporations or the authorities they get against these dogs so these so they uh, these uh, uh, programs they are much more towards for instance if you look at the uh, the entire uh, work around the uh, uh, commonwealth ex- uh, games which are con- which were conducted in uh, delhi 2009 2010 so that entire area which the common health village which was cleaned and cleaning meant removing the street dogs and the homeless people from that particular area and moving them to a, a center where they think they'll be safe 
so these areas was were to be made were, were to be cleaned and safety issues were brought yeah. out and these were done under the these under the control programs so how this program has moved from a uh, a lens which is from a point where they were uh, talking about controlling the population controlling rabies as a health factor so these these factors are still there mm-hmm. but another level has come across which is cleaning the city cleaning the city spaces in accordance with the upper upper middle class and above uh, classes in these urban areas in these cities yeah. so so these uh, so where they are these street dogs are considered as a nuisance in these gated settlements and they are kept outside of these settlements uh, and who want the, to be ridden off of these like dirty dogs and and this is this uh, idea of the aesthetics or the cleanliness or the dirt dirt of the dog that that itself is a differentiation which people uh, for instance make between a street dog and a high end breed dog mm. and how and so these two different these are very two different dogs i would say different categories of dogs within the dog in the in these cities because a breed dog is so if uh, some a large part of my work i've been studying again this is another theme which is cross cutting across is the informality so i'm studying informal mm-hmm. settlements i'm looking at how uh, across social social structures of urbanization across uh, socioeconomic classes dogs are perceived is there is there an effect of these uh, um, so societal norms on on the interactions with dogs in these areas so if i'm studying a middle class gated colony i'm also studying an informal settlement and dogs in these areas and their interactions in yeah. these areas so then how people in informal settlement they have a very different understanding they they say that they share because they share the same space they also share an identity with these street dogs as opposed to those breed dogs or the high end or the, uh, the pet dogs in these uh, big houses which are obviously around these informal settlements who have a soap to bathe every day who have air conditioned cars to travel around so how the, mm-hmm. th- these people in the in uh, in yeah. these settlements they are uh, interacting they are uh, sharing and then within these settlements also you'll find people who have uh, uh who have uh, go, who uh, have pets uh, for instance they have uh, mixed labradors or they have indian spitz as breeds who are keeping them and these dogs are very much confined into their houses they are not let out mm-hmm. into the streets or allowed to mingle with the any of the pet dogs because they'll get dirty their fur will yeah. get dirty so this entire concept of aesthetics this concept of dirt this concept of cleanliness and combined with the concept of a good life which a breed dog has which a pet dog has living in in a um, in an uh, in a better in a higher class settlement is i think which mm-hmm. which is also driving this uh, entire program now because these yeah. complaints are on the basis of which the municipal corporations or the authorities are working now so these complaints okay. from the residents from the people from the areas uh, where dogs uh, and these complaints range from like what the dog is barking at night and it's causing me causing nuisance or the dog is sitting on my car so that is a problem mm-hmm. for me so these are the complaints so- which are there yeah i want to try and think about these concepts though also in terms of how they 
you know, they, they could potentially be useful for a variety of, of, of scholars and researchers. And I think you've touched on something here that's really important with, with aesthetics, right? So there are important concepts that came up throughout the, the season, I think, that do cut across, like informality and mm-hmm. um, biopolitics, certainly. But what you've spoken about here uh, with management, kind of with the entanglements of different populations, the significance of aesthetics mm-hmm. as, as a way of organizing um, animal populations. And I think this is significant, right? So I, I come from a historical background where cows historically have been removed from North American cities and so have pigs and a variety of other animals mm-hmm. due to kind of these aesthetics, these ideas of who is dirty and who is clean. Mm-hmm. And this was obviously born of some of these entanglements with different popu- human populations that were yeah. uh, defined as being problematic or not. Absolutely. And this then for me kind of brings up a different uh, potential theme that's cutting across all of these. And that's the idea of taxonomy, right? How, how, um, yeah how we are categorized as being clean or dirty or being in a wealthy neighborhood or not wealthy neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And often it's not as a clear cut as a binary, right? Or clean or dirty. You you kind of have these, um, th- there are multiple kind of uh, markers to mm-hmm. differentiate animals. Yeah. And it's not, it's often not based on species, right? Like you've shown here with dogs, species is, is one thing. And I think dogs get a lot of Mm-hmm. I think people can more readily accept that dogs are kind of divided in these ways, but how are other animals also divided in these ways, right? Like yeah. uh, Yamini Narayanan, for example, spoke about cows a fair bit. Uh, yeah. And and I think she highlighted, particularly in the Indian context, how, how different cows and different urban settlements have um, a subject to these kind of taxonomies right. that are shaped by politics, that right. are shaped by religion. Yeah. Um, so for me, I think taxonomy is another one of these really important themes. Yeah, yeah. I think... Uh, if I can add a, a bit, with respect to the taxonomy, this kind of categorization, this you know necessary categorization of who the animal is, what is the animal doing in the city, if this is refracted through the lens of dirtiness or sanitation, you know, it's not only the the particular animal, but it's also the practices around the animals, right? What 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 what, what all human practices. Um, around the animal are considered acceptable and so you know they're okay and what are the kinds of practices that are uh, unacceptable and and hence are dirty so for example um, India has a large large informal meat economy and uh, you you have specific people milking the cattle you know and and there is clearly there's clearly clearly a, a law that bans any kind of uh, uh, cow slaughter, except for in two, three states. And I think uh, Yamini already spoke about that. But then again, the people who are doing the labor in the meat industry, they are themselves kind of kept outside these ideas of what a nice city or what what a good city should look like. And so so initially, there was a slaughterhouse in Delhi uh, that was in the middle of the city. And subsequently, that was kind of moved to the periphery. And with the periphery went all the Muslim, uh, basically community that was involved in butchering. And they were translocated to outside the city. And what developed outside uh, these slaughterhouses were garbage dumps. And so you subsequently now have a clean city because the meat economy went away. It is now at the periphery. And with the going out of this practices around meat, which were considered dirty in so many ways. You have blood, you have so on and so forth, you know, and all of this. And then you also have the garbage dump coming around because 
it those were the preferred areas where nobody from these elite you know neighborhoods would ever visit so i think the garbage dump is actually a place that uh, animal study scholars need to uh, it's it's an important place right yeah. so streets come up and i think here we start to talk a bit about geography like streets are definitely important homes are definitely important, important. Yeah. but the garbage dump is i think and it came up uh, when i was speaking to marcus about multi species commons right. the garbage dump as a place to yeah. you know how he used multi species commons as a methodology to kind of uh, unpack the variety of stories i think you know one how does a particular space become a garbage dump right. like who was displaced in order to create a garbage dump mm-hmm. uh, but also which populations do you find there mm-hmm. why do you find them there um and what activities this ties back to what you were saying about the the activities yeah. um and and how different animal populations and human populations work side by side to work through some of these places uh, and of course this is also tied to i think what Catherine Oliver was talking about with urban metabolism, right? right. This is the waste of the city. Yes. It's the outputs Absolutely. of the city that no one wants to see. So I, I think, Shapangi, you really like hit a nail on the head there, speaking a bit about aesthetics and sanitization because it's this idea of like the ordered city. We don't want to see the dirt. We don't want to see the mess. And um, and I think the, the garbage dump, like I've often said, everyone who's doing these like climate change conferences and – you should be having that climate change conference and seminar right next to the garbage dump. That's where you should be having it. You should have your windows open. You should be smelling the garbage. You should be feeling the heat. There should be no bottled water because then you're really, I think, at the site of things that no one wants to talk about. And it's not only the larger garbage dumps which which are important to look about and study these, but, but the smaller... Uh, like the collection of garbage which is there every day around yeah. if if you're working in an informal settlement or even in these middle class settlements in very early morning if i'm going to follow the dogs i see like outside every house there's a pile of garbage and that is that in itself is very important when i'm looking at a dog because that is a rich source of food for for the dog for the entire day in that area Absolutely. unless there's someone who's coming to feed the dog there are places where dogs don't are not fed the entire day so that garbage dump and then the rat pickers who come in the early hours when no one can see them also so that's there how when they are picking up those garbage and how they are interacting with the dogs what kind of relationship these uh, these people who are anyways uh, who are uh, who are, uh, on the mar- who are on the margins of the human society are interacting with street dogs who are on the margins of the dog society so that's an interesting yeah. uh, i feel like uh, comparison like if you're looking at the larger garbage dumps and these smaller dumps in these colonies wherever you go around the city especially in indian cities you'll find them a lot in in piles around yeah. so that's also very important mm-hmm. to look at and and even what you were saying there about when uh, you know, this says Absolutely. something both about the dog populations as well as those uh, folks who are, are are using trash to sustain themselves as well. Right. You know, the fact that they're choosing specific times of day also speaks to uh, the extent to which they want to be seen or unseen. Right? They Absolutely. they know both populations know that there are repercussions. I um, I'm from Johannesburg, and and I would know on the days when you take out just your garbage can, there are people who rely on mm-hmm. you know materials from within those cans mm-hmm. and they can sometimes face really severe repercussions from from people if they found if they're found digging through trash so so this also says something about i think the informality and the extent to which different activities are 
recognized as being legitimate uh, versus not. And I think that's really, really significant and important when thinking through when thinking through this. Yeah, and thank you for bringing, because it's easy to kind of think about that massive dumpster. Like you imagine one city and one big dump site yeah. with all of our trash <laughs> in it, but actually it's a lot more diffuse than that. Yeah. I always think of Wally. Did you ever see the movie Wally? Yes, yes, yes. It's all happening in a, you know. Right? Yeah. Like, Wally, Wally just knew, Wally, Wally knew what was going on. But yeah. maybe, anyway, um, when in doubt for philosophy, just turn to like Pixar, Pixar <laughs> films and you'll be right. <laughs> yeah. Okay, uh, maybe now we can uh, just switch gears. Oh, before we close here, so I've been trying to jot down some of the intercutting themes, management, entanglement, power and wealth, aesthetics and sanitization, taxonomy, categorization, um, and kind of this tension between garbage and resource. These are Absolutely. these are some like cross-cutting themes that came up in, in almost all of the the uh, the interviews. And, and certainly it's so weird, but I feel like I need to say it's something that's also cross-cutting here. Uh, you mentioned power dynamics. This is also intercut with a whole bunch of violence, right? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. Uh, in, in almost all of these interviews, we came across certain uh, violences being done that are both seen and unseen. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. uh, sometimes it's so prevalent in the work we do that we forget to actually just say it out loud. And we spoke about a gap being, uh, you know, a conversation on methods and how we do this type of work. Before we turn to talking about our quotes, uh, are there any other gaps that you felt you would have liked to have seen more of in this kind of conversation about uh, the urban? Yeah, I think for I, me, methods was... Uh, the biggest thing because that's something I've been grappling with a lot in these three years so I felt mm-hmm. after listening to all of it because it was there it was it, it, it in all of these episodes there, there were different kinds of methods which were being talked about but it didn't just come out in the open and mm-hmm. discussed uh, and so I think that's the one for me yeah I, I do. I, I think maybe some more actual like urban theory could have uh, possibly been pulled through. I mean, everyone here did, and mm. I think uh, here, you know, Krithika and Yamini were were game changers in terms of actually unpacking. Like Yamini's episode, I think, for just talking through urban theory, yeah. she was just a wealth. I feel like every sentence was something I needed to oh. to write down. <laughs> but even. Mm some of what you two have been speaking about here with regards to comparing cities. Mm-hmm. Like I know um, this yeah. is a, this is a, a growing field in urbanism, right? Yes. In an urban scholarship yeah. that's not talking about animals. You've got uh, Jennifer Roberts, Jennifer Robinson, Robinson talking yeah. about like, yeah. yeah, Robinson. Yeah. Um, kind of talking about the power of thinking through elsewhere yeah. that it's important yeah. to, uh, and I think again, this came up in, in kind of dogs came up in most of these interviews and you start to see that, thinking through elsewhere starts to show you that some of these relationships that we take for granted aren't, uh, they're not necessarily taken for granted. They didn't have to happen that way. Mm. So I would have maybe liked a bit more uh, urban urban theory and maybe a bit more urban economy uh, stuff. Really I think important. that. Yeah. I think I think what you're talking about uh, through the comparative cities lens, I felt that uh, that came across, I mean, subtly through the global south and global north comparison, where initial interviews, uh, the cities were mostly uh, talking about how in the west they, they, uh, the uh, urban animals are seen, and then with Kritika Srinivasan and Yamani Narayan's work, um, it, the Indian cities came up with a different perspective, with a different kind of everyday living. I feel that, that that comparison lens was there. But yeah, I, as you're saying, this could definitely have been talked more about if urban theory was brought in mm-hmm. more. Yeah. Okay, great. 
Um, yeah, so if you have any other ideas, let me know. Uh, but maybe now we can switch to uh, switch to talking a bit about your quotes. So yeah. I don't know who would like to go first, but uh, normally you guys have listened, so you know how it goes. Uh, you read your you read your quotes, and then we will we'll just have a little bit of a chat about some of the, the ideas that crop up there. Uh, so whoever wants to go first, you can take it away. Okay, so I have sorry, I have two quotes, slightly long. Uh, it's okay this is what everyone does <laughs> i have one from a book and the other one is from is a field uh, is from my field diary and interaction with my um, respondents so i found it interesting and wanted to share so the quote from this is a book is the inside of a dog by alexandra horowitz and the quote and uh, the quote is the dog's gaze is an examination a regard a gaze as at another animate creature he sees us, which might imply that he thinks about us, and we like to be considered. Naturally, we wonder in that moment of shared gaze, is the dog thinking about us the way we are thinking about the dog? What does he know about us? Dogs are anthropologists among us. They are students of behavior, observing us in the way that the science of anthropology teaches its practitioners to look at humans. Dogs don't stop looking at the grimpy walk, at a rush of leaves tumbling down the sidewalks at our faces. The urban dog may be bereft of natural sights, but he is rich in the odd, the drunken man swerving through the crowd, the shouting sidewalk preacher, the lame and destitute. All get long stares from the, uh, from the dogs who pass them. What makes dogs good anthropologists is that, is that they are so attuned to humans. They notice what is typical and what is different. And just as crucially, they don't become inured to us as we do, or nor do they grow up to be us. So that's the book quote. And the second quote is for one of my uh, daily interactions from my field notes. So uh, it goes as Mrs. Sharma walks down the same street in Delhi every morning to check on the construction of her house. She has another house nearby where she lives with her son and his family. She had moved there after her husband passed away. But now that she has retired from her government job, she intended to live in, the in this house that her late husband and she had bought together. Clad in her crisp cotton salwar kameez, which is traditional Indian Punjabi women attire, her hair nicely tied back in a bun, she passes me every morning with a smile. I presume this smile is an encouragement towards my work here. She had stopped me in between my following of Lali, a young white female dog with black patches, on the second day of my observations to inquire, and I quote her, why are you interested in these dogs? Are you from the government and are, are going to take them away? On getting to know about my research, she patted on me on my back with her encouraging words. Nobody tries to study them. Everyone here wants them taken away. She explained to me that Lali was very dear to her and she comes every day early morning to feed her bread and milk. Happily, Lali would snuggle her nose to her feet, wagging her tail left to right. It helps her twofold, Mrs. Sharma explained to me one day while feeding Lali. She can keep a check on the notorious construction workers in their progress on her house and she gets to meet Lali. 
Later in the week, Mrs. Sharma informed me that Lali had given birth in her house. Excitedly, she wanted to show me the puppies, but was apprehensive of disturbing them as they were already subjected to the unsettling sounds of construction. But now she was seriously worried about them. One of the puppies had passed away and the others were also in a bad shape. She was considering taking them to the hospital. She informed me that her neighbors were also not happy about the increasing dog population and had had their eyes on the puppies. She could shift them somewhere else. This morning, I saw Mrs. Sharma anxiously walking, almost half running to her house and looking for something. She was followed by her also worried son. He was the eldest she had and who shared her interest in the care and love for other animals. They were both looking for something or someone. On getting near, I could hear her calling out to Lali frantically. She approached me to inquire if I had seen her anywhere. One of Lali's puppies, apparently, had been run over last night by a passing by vehicle. In 10 days, Lali had lost all her puppies. When Lali wouldn't come to her, Mrs. Sharma said to me, and this is her quote, Look how today she is not coming to me. She is sad today. She blames me for not taking care of them. She doesn't talk to me anymore. That's a terribly sad story. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. very, very and profound. I didn't see it going that way. And that's, that's sort of, I mean, uh, the mortality rate of uh, puppies in India and in these cities is extremely uh, high. Extremely high. And most of them, like, they give in to the extreme con- weather conditions and um, improper care lack of health infrastructures but most of them i mean this is from person communications from the fields uh, field studies that most of them die because they are overrun by vehicles intentionally or unintentionally and i, I felt i wanted to share this uh, field uh, entry because like it very it it brought out it captured all the ideas and all the aspects of this relationship which I wanted to look at. There's how she's scared, how she's judging me being there with my diary, with my phone, because she thinks that I'm someone from the government and I'm thinking of taking away the dogs. Mm-hmm. So this shows that that her concern for the dogs and also she must have come across these incidences these experiences previously with with people coming there from the government to take away dogs or to look after look at the dogs whoever her interaction which made her judge my my presence in the in that area as such and then also i really like how i mean it's it's sad it's definitely sad and when i actually uh went beyond that i could see what her relationship with the dog was because she was saying she was uh, looking at herself from the dog's point of view she mm-hmm. was saying that because she was not able to look after the puppies of lali lali is not responding to her calls that day lali is not mm-hmm. coming to her i think what's fascinating there is also because you juxtaposed that with the one from alexander horowitz right um and the idea of observing or watching each other. And I think, like you say, what, what she's doing there is also speaking to how Lali was paying attention to her and how she was paying attention to Lali. So there was there was active attention happening mm-hmm. between them. And um, the first quote, I think, spoke to dogs do watch. They do watch all the time. Like sometimes I think people who have dogs in their homes are all of a sudden surprised. They're like, I didn't teach her that. And she's doing that because they were watching you. They yeah. figured out what you enjoy, Absolutely. what you don't, what you like, what you do. Yes. Um 
but then at the same time, I think uh, we perhaps, you, you speak about the gaze, some humans pay particular attention to some animals, um, but the extent to which that we offer kind of that generous gaze of just observing to see what is it you need right now, um, or just observing, uh, just watching. I don't, I don't know if uh, we are as generous or not, not all of us uh, and not often enough, I think, yeah. um, are, are as generous as just watching them in awe and in wonder. Uh, and that's also something that came up, I think, throughout the season yeah. is just look at the animals, yeah. pay attention to how amazing they are, marvel at their life. This was a clearly a really difficult week for Lali, right? Yeah. Like this, um, yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah. Anmol, do you have any any thoughts before you share your your quote? No, I, I mean, it was this was just too poignant. And I mean, I was clearly taken by surprise. And absolutely, the the kind of juxtaposition of um, the quote by Horowitz and then Shubhangi kind of, you know, it, 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 of course, kind of tells us that, yes, the animals are kind of always um, observing us. But it also tells us uh, methodologically, how do we kind of, how can we kind of achieve some of those, you know, Exactly. At least yeah. address some of those questions, you know, mm-hmm. by talking mm-hmm. to the people, and yeah. and and it doesn't have to absolutely be um, the animal's perspective itself, because I think in and I mean I think all of us would agree that we'll never be able to capture, you know, the exact worldview of the animal, the individual. Very difficult. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But 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 there are ways to get around it. There are ways to get around it. There are ways in which. You know, people would say how you would triangulate, you know, people would mm, people would use mm. the term to kind of use your own understanding and knowledge or, and then of the other people. And then also see that Lali is Saturday, no, you know, Lali yeah. isn't emerging out. And so mm. these are kind of indicators which tell us the story about uh, that individual dog. It's not the story yeah. of the people. It's the story of the dog. But there are yeah, people who will tell the us. The dog is leading us to. To, exactly. Yeah. But mm-hmm. I think that is something that. Yeah, and I think on top of that is also I can't capture anyone's perspective. Sometimes I think we we put a lot of weight on kind of the verbal, mm-hmm. um, and dogs communicate and and animals communicate a lot through what they do mm-hmm. and like you say who they're with and who they entrust, yeah. um, and and also I think to some extent trusting our own observations, which need to be held in tension. Right, uh, yeah. I think this has come up in previous interviews. The first people to say that they love their animals are also the farmers who are are using animals, right? Yeah. So there there is um there is a tension with observing, uh, with how much we can know. Mm-hmm. But there is also I wouldn't completely throw out those observations either. Um, you know, who who is watching your ability to watch Lali. Yeah. Uh yeah, I think I think there are many ways in which we can yeah. know potentially what they're going through. And I think empathy is a really powerful a powerful tool you know how would you feel if you had yeah. six kids and they all died in one week that's that's uh, without disavowing also what our own cultural attachments are to children versus what lali's and, and i think it um, and i think it kind of also brings the question of the agency of the animal itself you know hmm. um, of maneuvering the city of, of being able to experience certain kinds of things I mean, they might not be exactly how the animal might have kind of figured, but um, there are ways to just talk about the... And and I I think because we're not talking about the gaze, um, one example from my field work comes to my head, 
where I, I had been observing this one individual adult female monkey at one of my field sites. And um, it, it had been three days and they were long, long observations. So I'm pretty sure that individual is very, very aware of my presence. And, um, and I constantly kept thinking to myself that, you know, it isn't a large troop. It's just this female and this another adult male. And the adult female is sitting around. And and I was wondering whether this individual observes me or not. Because, you know, mm. it's just the two of us and some other kind of passers-by. It's nobody else there. It so happened that I, uh, for a moment, I, I, was, I was writing notes. I had a notebook and a pen. And I just kept the pen aside for just a second. The female quickly came to the pen, inspected the pen, kind of started chewing on it. Then it slightly just looked at me and just threw it in my direction. And I suppose, and I thought maybe it's not that exactly. It was just trying to throw it away. But then no, she she picked it up again and then threw it at my face. <laughs> my God! So, so the so so the idea is so at least in my understanding is that the. That individual was observing me. It was observing not only mm. me, it was observing the articles that I was holding. It associated exactly. that pen with me. Well, I saw I saw a video, uh, I think it was yesterday or two days ago, of a vervet monkey in, in South Africa mm. who, now South Africans aren't big mask wearers, right? Um, we don't have a history of wearing masks, so it's a relatively new um, phenomenon because of COVID-19 that everyone's wearing masks. Mm. And all of a sudden, yeah. someone had dropped their mask and a vervet monkey picked the mask up and didn't just like wrangle it about to do anything. Um, he proceeded to put, put it over the, his yes, face. I think and I saw that, around. yeah. And that's got no bearing no that's purely observation Absolutely. that's seeing that device on a human face and saying wait this does something yeah. and the the monkey was trying to figure out what the mask does and yeah. that's observation 101 exactly. that is observation yeah. um which is like, just wild a lot of learning go, behavior go in uh, monkeys and primates is through imitation like mm. uh, for instance if you look at uh, the entire uh, discussion around the trading behavior in Bali and Indonesia, which has been written yeah. about in, in uh, primates and uh, uh, by Funtis. And it's, it's also there in, and it's also being written about in, in, in India. There's, it's, it happens in uh, North Indian temples also. where So this, this trading behavior is where uh, a monkey would come and take something valuable, say, a, say your glasses, your phones, or an eatable or a piece of clothing like a shawl from you and then it would go and sit uh, a perch, uh, sit on a like a, a lamp post or a, a roof whatever which is nearby but also approachable and then when you give that uh, give that animal a, a pouch of food uh, which he recognizes like these are sold around in these areas and say brown envelopes or a sugar sugar pellets whichever you say sold around when you throw that, that and then the monkey would lose that object and it would come down to you and then the monkey would catch that food. So this kind of trading wow. behavior which is yeah. being studied. is also, and these, So these behaviors are very much learned through imitation uh, across generations. Mm -hmm. So learning Amazing. about your environment uh, is, is a very big part of uh, like growing up in these uh, societies. Yeah, and, and I think recognizing that is to also decenter ourselves, right? Like we yeah. think that we're these great observers yeah. and knowers of things. Um, we just have a different way of storing our knowledge, mm -hmm. of of passing down our knowledge. But um, 
yeah, it's it's we're not the only ones watching, I'm feeling, <laughs> uh, which is really which is really fascinating. Okay, um, we've we've been speaking. I do this at like the, also the, I think I just enjoy these conversations and like I'm always like, oh my god, the time's running out. Yeah, okay, yeah, the um, quote. Anwar, yes. let's go to let's go to your quote. Yes. Uh, so this is a quote from uh, the paper titled "The More Than Human City" by Adrian Franklin. Um, it's a 2016 paper, and um, he writes this in context of um, uh, what does it really entail to be living around animals you know in this kind of the um, essentially the uh, idea of entanglement what does it really mean and so um, right in theorizing this continuity in change it is essential to understand the consequences of this contiguity and cohabitation with non-human elements of the city we cannot merely leave it as a representation, we need to ask what followed, what happened, what iterations and entanglements occurred, with what consequences. One answer was that the extensive parks and gardens might have been built as representations of true wilderness for humans or imported classical cityscapes. But that's not how nature itself was going to act on it. This quote kind of makes us think about a lot of these questions. One, the use of the word nature, you know, are we kind of talking about nature being separate, separated mm. from the city itself or from the urban itself? Because for an ecologist, then generally for an ecologist or, or people who are studying animals in the urban, for them, the urban is just another kind of ecological setting, right? It's another mm. kind of natural landscape. And even in my understanding, a monkey who's born in a city is a city monkey. I mean, mm. I mean, there are going to be different kinds of um, affordances that it might have with respect to whatever resources it has, vis-a-vis the you know um, the differences that a rural counterpart might share. But um, you know, kind of this this constant discussion about whether the city is contained in the in this idea of nature or is nature somewhere out there. And, you know, is it wild? When we say wild, does it mean nature? You know, uh, uh, that is something that this kind of brings about. But it also tells us about that it's not only enough to look at these entanglements. I mean, we can look at them, we can describe them, we can talk about them. But we also need to see why in the first place did they start happening. And once they are happening, what is kind of, what does it entail for the animal itself? What does it entail Mm -hmm. for the city? What does it entail for the human cohabitants and in that sense it's talking about this kind of cohabitation in its literal kind of sense that you know animals and humans living in a you know city uh, uh, space kind of contributing to it building mm-hmm. it together you know so yeah. so so would the would the would the uh, hanuman mandir which is which is a hanuman deity is a monkey god in india uh, so the and it was one of my field sites in delhi it's in central delhi so would that still be the same hanuman mandir if there wouldn't be all of those 30 monkeys that populated most you know on most days every day evening morning you know would it still be mm-hmm. the same hanuman mandir or would it just be another temple that nobody kind of knows about so it is also kind of a the monkeys are the reason that a lot of people visit the place and mm-hmm. and and so not only in terms of association between the monkey god and the monkey itself but also that 
certain areas are just known because of animals you know this is where you'll find the monkeys oh if you walk down that that street there are what's it called uh, dairy farms that side oh you know if you go towards this side there are informal settlements where people will be uh, rearing chickens and goats and pigs so you uh, you mm-hmm. have these demarcations within the city and so would the kind of yeah. city be the city without the animals then you know and and i think I mean, I think a, a political slant needs to be added onto that, though, as well, right? Like, there are definitely distinctive spaces that become those spaces because of human-animal relations mm-hmm. in those spaces, 100%. But a lot of the uh, examples you you gave there were also utilitarian examples, right, where animals are being used actively in these mm-hmm. spaces. And I think, um, you know, to, to what extent these inclusions and exclusions happen, yeah. uh, what, what kind of city do we want yeah. in 50 years from now? And... And what kind of relationships do we want defining those cities? So, yeah. so for me, it's not just enough to to say the presence of the animals is creating the city as we know it, but is that the kind of city we, we really want to know? Want. And I think, yeah, yeah. and then and, and, and I think, go ahead. And then the idea here of the city, like it's been uh, in urban studies, how the city is thought of as a living space, living entity, and yeah. then moving it beyond thinking of extending it towards like an interactive space where humans mm-hmm. and non-humans and inanimate uh, objects every all of them they are interacting and which is mm-hmm. contributing to the everyday activities in these mm-hmm. cities i think they, yeah. yeah i think this is also where the, the first episode of the season and the last episode of the season are actually really Talking helpful about so where yeah. you know where where marie is speaking about the the claim to the city yeah. so uh, you know, who has a claim to be here and not just to be here, but to be here and having a good life. And uh, and how do we make those opportunities available? And, you know, Michelle speaking about urban design, design and yeah. how design could make opportunities possible. Yeah. And I think she was really lovely and not foreclosing what those look like. Yeah, I mean, it was it was just a, a great episode with, with Michelle and, and her way of thinking through kind of you know, saying, what could we build to create opportunities? And this might create problems in future. It might do these things, yeah. but but instead of designing, you know, a lot of what we've spoken about today is how animals are pushed, how they're problematized, how they're managed. Uh, but instead of creating opportunities for where they could be and flourish, and I think mm-hmm. uh, this speaks to your point, Anmol, about like the idea of nature. How do we how do we stop constantly building these ideas that mm-hmm. that we are separate from? And it almost seems like a truism to me now, yeah. uh, you know, and I'm sure it's the same for you guys that now that we've been doing this for a couple of years, we're like, of course, the city's more than human. Of course, the city's a natural space. Yeah. Um, but but yet it's you, you speak to folks and it's it's not right. This idea of the, the city being somehow different and special is uh, really, really important. Yeah. But I take your point uh, about these animals defining a space as well and they mm-hmm. need to be given credit and i think another example here is um toronto with raccoons yeah. like what would toronto be without raccoons yeah. um yeah people have this kind of ambivalent relationship with them right. no and also yeah. kind of slightly clarify here see the animals that and, and i said different kinds of animals could be found in different pockets of the city all of them at some point are just let free from chickens to goats not so much to pigs because there's certain kind of Again, you know, the, there's a politics, there's a caste kind, caste politics, mm-hmm. politics of being dirty, unclean with respect to the pigs. But a lot of these animals are on their own throughout the day. They just 
they just you know they either go back to either feed on uh, you know eat on uh, whatever is provided to them or just go and kind of rest and relax mm-hmm. but with respect to the monkeys they are just free ranging they are free ranging in the city of delhi there no nobody's taking care of them nobody's specifically involved in feeding them but it's just everyday people who passers by certain people who have certain kind of religious commitments to monkeys who are who have been feeding mm-hmm. them and so for so when i say that there are certain spaces that are defining uh, certain animals that are defining certain spaces in the city i don't mean just the animal i mean also the kind of interactions that they have on their own the animals mm-hmm. the interactions that they create for themselves the kind of decisions that they might take every day it's not only yeah, because they are being like- read you know that's yeah. not my Yeah. yeah and like there are certain spaces which uh, i mean this has been talked about like how there are certain spaces which humans have assigned to specific animals like the animal spaces, spaces but it's yeah. not just those spaces uh, where the animals in the city are restricted to they are moving out and beyond of these spaces and they they're making their own ble- beastly places which mm-hmm. which for instance how for their own like based on seasons i see like how dogs uh, uh, occupy certain uh, different places in the settlements which have been designed for a different purpose by humans but mm-hmm. they have refashioned it or they have occupied it to that extent that the human would just not utilize for instance there's a particular cemented stairs which was made constructed like three step of stairs which was constructed for an ent- uh, for an uh, sep- uh, different entry to the to a house other than the main gate but then because it was so hot and that cement was uh, offered a very cool resting place for the dogs they started to rest uh, uh, one of the females she started to rest on that cemented steps and they just did left it they left it they said that we don't want to uh, like paint it or whatever layer layer of tiles on it or what i we just want to leave it because i we see that the dog is getting uh, is wow. feeling good over there and it's it's giving him uh, giving her some kind of respite from the heat mm-hmm. so how they are also making these places which were previously designed for some other purpose yeah. where they have repurposed mm-hmm. it and through their uh, uh, occup- uh, occupying that space so it's interesting yeah, how they're claiming they're claiming, they're claiming it, that yeah. space yeah mm. And, these, and, of, and that is part of that like iterative design process that Michelle was talking mm-hmm. about. Exactly. That if, 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 if designers started to actually pay attention to these other, um, you know, these other animals and what they need. And I think it came up with Yamini as well when she was speaking about monkeys in the city, how they mm-hmm. use um, the buildings, buildings to move about yes. and, and, and it, how it's important and, and, to their mobility. And it's fascinating, it's fascinating because the, the, the rhesus monkeys, which are predominant in the city of Delhi, in all of their free ranging wild habitats they are they've been observed to be more more terrestrial than more than arboreal but in the city hmm. it's actually the other it's becoming the other way around because wow. the ter- the terrestrial mode of you know movement often offers challenges crossing a road you know hitting a getting hit by a vehicle so on and so forth so there are these kinds of hybrid structures that have happened in some of these areas say for example a lamp post and the wires some of some of the tree branches have come and intertwined with them so the so so that with the tree becomes like passing corridor for them they would often use that they would use the uh, the cemented boundaries um, um you know around gated colonies homes so on and so forth all of these places to kind of roost at night because you know they're also up above they're, mm. they're able to have a gaze on 
if at all there's going to be a predator and there are these are these are some some of the more ecological questions that have already been asked about monkeys but they're doing it differently in the city itself yeah and i think this then starts to come to the heart of what is a city right mm-hmm. what is urbanization and yeah. i think um you know, when we start to realize that humans are maybe not the only ones that are urbanizing, Absolutely. that the infrastructure here is not the only ones that, that's, you know, calling for concentrations of human populations, but other animals might actively make choices to concentrate here yeah. um, and to build something here, to to do something differently here. Uh, it was the same with Marcus speaking about the hyenas. Like yeah. there's there's something dynamic going on there with how that city has become a city, right? Um, and it involves both violences and becoming wits and you know the romantic things and also the 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 not so nice things but all of this kind of melds together to make hurrah the city it is um or to make Delhi the city it is so uh yeah those are really I think fascinating examples to kind of just think through and the, the work you're doing of actually watching what what animals are doing and the choices they're making is fascinating so thank you so much for for giving me so much of your time today uh before we say goodbye i just want to give you both an opportunity to um, let folks know if they're interested in your work uh i, I know that you both said you're busy writing up your phds yeah. now so you're both uh, finishing that up but if people are interested in your work how can they get in touch with you uh, so I'm, uh, if, any, if anyone is interested, they can definitely um, drop an email. Uh, and uh, my email ID is shubha.shravastava, uh, which should be spelled out on the website, I'm sure. 06 at the gmail.com. <laughs> or they can also reach me on Twitter. I'm fairly active there. That's a good, better way to reach. So mm-hmm. yeah, I can just tweet or drop me a private message for anyone. I'd yeah, be very interested to hear from people who are interested in this kind of work. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the same for me. My email ID and my Twitter handle will be mentioned in the description, I, uh, I'm, I'm hoping. And so I think people can just reach out to me. Um, would love to have certain conversations. I think I really like having some of these conversations because it really self-affirms you about some of the things you might be doing. Sometimes you need absolutely, those conversations. Yeah. because. A, a PhD can even even though with four of us and we've been doing it somewhat together, even though yeah. a lot of our questions just clash because you know, for me, oh, am I looking at a wild animal? Oh, for Shubhangi, she's looking at stray animals, street animals, domesticated animals, and so you know there are certain contentions that we kind of get around, and it can be very isolating, especially in the the pandemic, mm-hmm. ongoing pandemic, you know, scenario. So I think reaching out and speaking is always a great. Um, you know. No, it's fascinating. I've, I've got some friends who I definitely don't agree with on things. Yeah. We're both animal studies people, but we, and I actually Ooh, find yeah. having those conversations. Yeah. Because um, you realize what you're like, why do I keep getting icky yeah, here? Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, yeah. my friend says something and I'm like, no, 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 that's not, that's not right. Um, and that says something maybe about my own like epistemology and mm-hmm. how I've, I've kind of stitch things together. Right. Um, so I know you're both working on your PhD. Is there anything, other projects you want to tell people about now or anything you want to share before we wrap things up? No, that's I that think... for now. I'll, uh, I'm working on my other uh, like publications from my uh, own research work and the thesis mm-hmm. as of now and soon maybe I'll yeah. write. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I, 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 hope, cool. I hope Catherine mentioned this um, somewhere. I don't know if I caught it. But uh, so Catherine is leading an editorial group for the geo uh, journal geography and environment and uh, uh, so we're a part of that team we've kind of written the uh, introduction, introduction uh, for all of papers yeah, 
yeah. call for wow. papers. So it's it's going to be and and the brilliant thing is it 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 actually covers the three themes that um have we been more today, yeah. yeah and less and less spoken about. One is that was that all part of the plan? No, <laughs> I was like I know what three themes to discuss. I see, I see what's happening. So so one is one is the one is the one is on methods. The other one is the right to the city. The third is. Uh, infrastructure, infrastructure and, and space, and it's yeah. exactly that. Wow! And, yeah, and I was fascinated. That is why I told you I was fascinated to see the themes that have been covered in this edition because it's just wonderful to you know you know realize that we're working towards similar things, and so there's so. Yeah. You better you better include the animal turn in that introduction and say, hey, if you guys are reading this, uh, definitely yeah. go and listen to the animal turn season three. <laughs> just a just a soft soft plug. No, um, yeah. uh, that's really really exciting. Please make sure that you uh, once that call. I know, like Catherine is a Catherine Oliver is a, a powerhouse. Yeah. She she seems to move yeah. at a million miles an hour. Yes. Um, and anything she touches seems to turn to gold. So, uh, and your whole group, the whole group, the, the work you guys are doing um, is really amazing. I think your group is at the forefront of kind of these questions about animals in the urban. So when that call comes out, please uh, send it my way too, and I'll share Absolutely. it via, yeah. via the, the network. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, but I, I really look forward to seeing more of your work and um, and connecting with you more in future. It's been, this is officially the longest interview I've ever done. Oh. Um, and it's just, I think it's a testament to how, uh, how just how many great ideas and things came up in this episode. Uh, so thank you, thank you, thank you. It was you. lovely. It was really great talking to you. Yeah. Absolutely brilliant. No, all thanks yeah. to you for having yeah. us here. You Absolutely. Know. Thank you so much. And thank yeah. you so much thank for doing so this, much. you know. This is an amazing way to reach You're out. You're doing a PhD a and, and, and managing yes. an entire podcast. It's I can brilliant. only imagine. Oh, my, um, my, my self-esteem is skyrocketing. Thank you. <laughs> no, but it's brilliant. Like the, yeah. all the themes across the seasons and uh, the episodes and the way you, yeah. like each episode has a different person who's talking about different thing, but is still connected to the previous and the next mm-hmm. one. Yeah. Brilliant management. Amazing. Oh. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> For this final animal highlight, I thought that we should maybe focus on an animal that's been rather implicit throughout the season, uh, and that is humans. Humans are the most widespread primates in the world. They, we, are social animals who are very adept at using tools. Homo sapiens emerged about 300,000 years ago and then split into different groups with migration or through migration. When humans started to domesticate was about 15,000 to 10,000 years ago. This period of domestication is often considered to be one of the big moments in human history and fundamentally changed the ways in which many humans structure their societies and their ways of living. Today, most of the 7.9 billion humans on Earth reside in permanent settlements and over half of these people are in cities. Humans are increasingly an urban dwelling species, aggregating into specific areas. Uh, And this aggregation has, in our most recent history, also led to a division in labor and kind of specialized tasks becoming increasingly more and more specialized. And when I started to look up, uh, you know, just searching interesting facts about humans, uh, I was rather struck by how differently these articles presented to articles that I was looking at about other animals. So if I looked up, for example, interesting facts about raccoons or squirrels, 
the articles almost immediately went to the biological or to the body. But what it did with humans was the same thing, but there was a differentiation between the species and the bodies. So all of these articles kind of said interesting facts about human bodies, whereas the articles about other animals just said interesting facts about raccoons or interesting facts about squirrels or interesting facts about leopards. And I don't really know how to articulate what that difference is, but for me, it's maybe pointing a bit to how we kind of view human bodies and human minds as separate, whereas animals are kind of amalgamated into one. I digress. There were some pretty interesting and fun facts about human bodies, uh, and I'm going to share some of them with you here. So while it's true that humans are not the biggest or the strongest animal, and I would probably argue not the smartest either, humans are the best at long distance running in terms of endurance, which is really fascinating. Uh, I would have thought that wolves would have been up there and far, far, um, you know, exceeded what humans are capable of. But in fact, humans, because of our ability to sweat, have our ability to sweat and our upright posture are fantastic long distance runners. Uh, goosebumps are the result of adrenaline, and it's believed that historically we might have used this adrenaline to make our hair stand up to appear a bit more uh, fearsome to predators and those that are trying to get us. Uh, our ears, and this made me a little bit sad, our ears and our noses will continue to get bigger and bigger the older we get. And this isn't because our ears and noses are actually growing, but because uh, the cartilage in our ears and noses kind of starts to, not the cartilage, sorry, the um, the collagen in the cartilage starts to break down. And as that breaks down, gravity takes hold and our noses and our ears start to droop a little bit more, uh, giving the appearance of being bigger. Uh, humans are not the only species with fingerprints. Uh, koalas, chimps, gorillas also have them, but it is one of the features that makes us fairly unique within the animal kingdom. And because I'm hungry, this is uh, interesting to note as well, right-handed people tend to chew more of their food on the right side of their mouth, and left-handed people tend to do so on the left sides of their mouths. Uh, and that's it. Uh, humans are pretty interesting and amazing animals. For uh, We have many, many faults and we have many things we need to fix and do. But when looking at us as animals, I think we are rather remarkable, but not the most remarkable and not necessarily the most exceptional. But like I've pointed out with our like I've pointed out with all the other animals that we've looked at in the highlights so far, the next time you see a human, maybe look at the human and think about them as humans that have their own individual histories that have been shaped by thousands and thousands and thousands of years of history of changes, including things like domestication, uh, that have altered how we relate to one another as well as how we relate to other animals. Thank you once again to Shivanji and Anmol for being fantastic guests in this final episode of Season 3. A huge thank you to Animals and Philosophy, Politics, Law and Ethics, Apple, for sponsoring this podcast, to Jeremy John for the logo and Gordon Clark for the bed music. I also want to say a thank you here to everyone else who's helped me make this podcast what it is, to my husband Oliver Hertenfelder who endures... I cannot even tell you how many conversations for me and bits and pieces about how I want to develop this podcast and ideas of things I want to do uh, to Paula Samanik, who gave me the microphone that makes things possible here to uh, Frederick and Christiane who helped me update the Apple website. 
Uh, to everyone who's shared and liked and left a review, uh, I cannot tell you how much that helps. And also a thank you to the folks that have sent me emails with ideas and thoughts and suggestions, uh, people that want to collaborate and create different kinds of blog entries or interviews or all sorts of things. Uh, thank you to all of you. I think you know who you are and uh, the end of season three for me marks a really big moment. Um, so thank you, thank you, thank you. I very much look forward to joining you in the next season, which is going to be all about animals and sound, uh, which is something I'm really new to and uh, kind of just figuring it out. Uh, if you have any ideas for concepts that would be really important in a season on animals and sound, I'm currently developing that list right now. So again, reach out, get in touch, let me know what you think. And uh, this season is going to actually have some co-sponsorship happening from the SAP Lab and the Sonic Art Studio. They're also going to be sponsoring this season. So I'm super excited. Things are developing. Watch this space. More is coming soon. This is The Animal Turn with me, Claudia Hotenfelder. For more great iRaw podcasts, visit iRawPod.com. That's I-R-O-A-R-P-O-D dot com. Ah!